Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, here we are back again for our fun, exciting whirlwind of a Lenten journey. I know that you've been waiting all week to see what's been coming next. Well, perhaps you haven't been waiting all week for this, but I have been. As you should know, if you've been watching those previous sermons, I have decided to use Lent as an opportunity to explore deeply the concept of God. What I'm most intrigued about is how a concept of God can fit into a modern worldview. What makes sense? It's relatively easy to say, I believe God exists, but that answer has never quite satisfied me. I need to know how God makes sense given contemporary philosophy and science. I want to delve deeper into the issue. And I hope you do too. Two weeks ago, we began this journey by looking at process theology. Process theology sees all of reality as constantly in flux and interrelated. Anything that happens in the world is a result of a combination of factors. Yet, if you look at human free will or even quantum mechanics, you realize that there is uncertainty in everything that happens. Things could go one way or another. Determinism, according to process thinkers, makes little sense, either philosophically or scientifically. The location of an electron at any given moment is subject to uncertainty. A human being can choose one thing or another. History does take turns that are not easily predicted. Process thinkers argue that everything in the world is made up of actual occasions, discrete moments, and that God is a source of novelty and allure towards love in every actual occasion and is also affected by each actual occasion. The details are more complicated than what I've just laid out, but I hope you can get a general sense of their theory. It's intriguing and worth further exploration, for sure. Then last week, I laid out the Christian existentialist view on God, as seen through the writing of Paul Tillich. Tillich examines life as it's actually lived and experienced by human beings. We find ourselves in situations where our lived existence is at odds with our essence. Our core being is assaulted by forms of non-being. Guilt and shame, meaninglessness, our own finitude, all place us in states of anxiety and threaten our deepest selves. How we have the courage to respond to the threats of non-being and affirm our core essence, our core being. How do we do it? We need to have something that comes from outside us and gives us the courage to be. That force is being itself or the ground of our being, which is God. If it weren't for God, we wouldn't have the courage to be. We would be overwhelmed by the anxieties of life. We come to know being itself through unity with all that is, i.e. the mystical path to God, or through personal encounters with being itself. I find both of these different perspectives fascinating, and I do wonder how atheists might respond to them. But these two perspectives are hardly the only valid philosophical position that we can take. There are others. And today, I get to talk about another such perspective, 
known as personal idealism. The easiest way to approach personal idealism is through a discussion of ethics. From where do we derive our ethics? That is the basic question. Where do ethics originate? The evolutionary biologist Richard Dawkins wrote a book on the ethics of evolution entitled The Selfish Gene. In that book, Dawkins argues that humans are hardwired for evolutionary success. Our genes lead us to the survival of the fittest. We are evolved to seek out our own benefit, and perhaps as well the benefit of our group, which also can lead to the propagation of our genes. We are genetically selfish. Dawkins also writes in his conclusion that he is not suggesting that our selfish genes provide the basis for our ethics. In fact, as he points out, our ethics have evolved in ways over time that go specifically against our hardwired instincts to selfishness. So if our ethics don't come from our genes, where do they come from? How do we know what's right? This was just the question that I asked repeatedly of my students when I taught ethics at Groton School in Groton, Mass. We went through different ethical systems, and I tried to show the students how these different ethical systems had their own coherence. But how do you choose one system over another? What is the ground, the basis for your ethical thinking? One author we read was Ayn Rand the foremost originator of objectivism, and the author of The Fountainhead and Atlas Shrugged. Rand argues that we should base our ethics on the survival of the fittest, and moreover, that we have the duty to do so. That is why she is so opposed to helping out the weakest in society. Helping the weakest in society is immoral, according to, according to Rand. Altruism was a harmful illusion. We need to be self-interested, in order to be truly moral. If that means some moochers get left behind and starve or can't get access to medical care, well, that's their problem, not yours. How would you argue against Rand? Is she wrong? If so, why? What do you base that on? Religious people have long argued that yes, Ayn Rand is wrong. She is wrong because there's a moral order to the universe, some underlying ethical norm. We should love others, not because it makes us happier or helps the most number of people, but because it's in line with this moral order of the universe. There is something, something that is non-material that guides our ethics. Religious people have claimed that right and wrong have their source, their root, in God. That is why you should act in one way or another. There is a divine mind out there, a divine consciousness. Of course, the promptings of this divine mind need to be filtered through our lived experience. We don't have unmitigated access to the divine mind. Our created existence gets in the way. That is why ethics and morality have evolved over time. Morality hasn't changed because the divine mind has changed. Rather, morality has changed as humans have progressed, thought through ethics with others in community, and consistently looked to the divine mind as the source of morality. 
So what more can we say about this perspective? How can we flesh out what the divine mind is or how it relates to humans? One way is to consider the writings of Plato, who was massively influential in the development of Christian thought. The great philosopher Plato theorized that the world we inhabit is a mere reflection of a higher reality. He claimed that a, world, a so-called world of forms existed. The world of forms was an alternate reality where the ideal, the form, of everything on earth resided. The world of forms was immaterial. And when the material world was created by what Plato called the Demiurge, the Demiurge used the world of forms as the basis for the construction of this world. But since this world is made up of matter, it was only a pale reflection of the ideal in the world of forms. Now, this may sound like a crazy idea at first, but it's not quite as crazy as you might think when you consider it more deeply. In order for something to exist, it has to exist as an idea first. First comes the idea, and then comes the execution of that idea. So a sculptor might have an idea for a statue, and then try to bring that statue into being through clay. But the statue will never be quite as perfect as the original idea. In much the same way, for everything that exists on earth, according to Plato, it had to first exist as an idea somewhere. That somewhere is the world of forms. Then the Demiurge used that idea to mold the world we have. But much like, as with the sculpture, the reality is never quite like the idea. And yet, by deep contemplation in the world, we can come to discern what that idea might be that lies behind our earthly reality. The world of forms is the source of truth in our world. Insofar as something conforms to the form, the ideal, it's closer to the truth. Since the world of forms is immaterial, the ideal would, ha would not be based on urges from our material bodies, like hunger or thirst or lust. It would exist on a higher level. The ideal for love, for instance, is not expressed in sex, but in the connection between two souls. Regardless of whether you think Plato's philosophy makes any sense to you, I hope you can see the framework that Plato uses. Plato is an idealist. Thoughts, perceptions, ideas are primary. The ideal is not found in the material world, but in an alternate world of forms. This way of thinking was hugely significant for Christian thinking on God. Christians replaced the world of forms and the demiurge that molds the material world with God. God is the absolute mind from which all creation springs. Everything that exists in the world first existed in the mind of God. The material world is secondary and a pale reflection of the perfection that is found in the mind of God. Truth is found in contemplating God. Thoughts, perception, ideas, and the soul are what matter most. Now, the 20th century brought about a major shift away from this classical idealist mindset. Materialism, not idealism, became the dominant mode of thinking. Philosophers argued that the material world is primary. Everything can be explained by examining the material world. Consciousness itself became merely an accidental byproduct of the wiring in our brains. 
Emotions and feeling are byproducts of chemical interactions in our brains and can be molded through science, medicine, and behavioral psychology. Your DNA holds the key to who you are, not your perceptions or your ideas. But even as materialism has come to dominate our thinking and philosophical worldview, there are those who have pushed back. Can something like love really be measured? Is that a material byproduct or something else, something deeper? What do we say about beauty? Can you measure beauty? Can you create metrics that lay out what makes a beautiful painting or a beautiful poem? What about ethics, the place where we started? How does a materialist judge right and wrong? Are ethics something we arbitrarily choose? Or are there some ethical norms that exist in the mind of God, which we can discern with careful reflection? Furthermore, is the material world really as straightforward as we think it is? What about quantum mechanics? Or the possibility of alternate universes? Or the relativity of space and time? Maybe there is more to idealism than we imagine. One contemporary theologian who's tried to argue for a modern Christian idealism is Keith Ward. Ward argues that God exists and that God is, the, God is the supreme mind out of which creation came. God created the universe because God wanted to express goodness and love through the created order. But Ward introduces some contemporary twists that make his version of idealism particularly attractive, at least to me. God, according to Ward, is not omnipotent. God does not command everything that happens. God, the universal mind, works on human minds, much like our minds work on our bodies. Our minds tell our bodies to act, but the action is limited by our bodies. Our bodies don't always respond the way we want them to. We have physical limitations, as well as emotional limitations. I can tell my body to fly or go run a four-minute mile, but it won't happen. I can tell my body to be rational and always do the right thing, but my emotions and feelings will sometimes get in the way. In an analogous manner, God works in us for love and good, but we don't always choose that. In our bodies, we are alienated from God, and yet we feel God working within us. God cannot make us do whatever God wants. When God created the world, God intentionally limited God's self. God works with creation to bring things towards the ideal, the ideal of spiritual union with God. And that's something we're moving to over time. Ward also offers a creative twist on the classic problem of evil. God is good. God wants to see good in action rather than only in the mind of God. So God created the universe. Part of good is creativity, and creativity involves struggle. Therefore, in order to bring about good, there must be contingent factors in the world. And since humans have free will, and God is limited in how God can control creation, sometimes evil occurs. Keith Ward, Ward self-identifies as a panentheist. He believes that God, the supreme mind, is present in all of creation. Creation is not itself God, but God is there, is present. 
Jesus was someone who was in tune with the divine mind. He achieved union with God. His actions reflected God's will for the world. By following in the model of Jesus, we too can be in God and God can be in us. Ward argues that his theology is reflected in the Bible. The Bible is not the literal word of God, but rather an account of one people's struggle over time to find a way to God, to the divine mind. In our interaction with the mind of God, we experience disobedience, alienation, and then return, reunion. This is a cycle that comes up again and again throughout the Old Testament. God is always calling God's people to return to God. Ward is a particularly big fan of the Gospel of John, with its emphasis on the union, with, the union of Jesus with God, and of our own capacity to find union with God in Christ. All of this brings us back to our reading for today from Exodus 20. The Ten Commandments are the prototypical example of ethical laws that come from the mind of God. While some of these ethical commands could come from, say, a desire for good order in the community, like not killing or coveting the goods of another, other of the commandments are valid because they are from God. Keep the Sabbath holy. Do not use the Lord's name in vain. Worship Yahweh and Yahweh alone. These commandments are right in the eyes of the Israelites because they come from God. If ethics were merely a matter of moral reasoning, these, ethics, these particular commandments wouldn't be included on the list. Instead, ethics derive from the divine mind. That's what's reflected in Exodus 20. It's important to see how the interpretation of these commandments has changed over time. The divine mind might have stable morality, but how it's reflected in the world depends on the con contingencies of creation. When the Ten Commandments first became a part of Jewish life, they meant something and were interpreted in a certain way. But over time, those interpretations shifted. Take the commandment to observe the Sabbath. Jesus had no qualms healing on the Sabbath and plucking grain on the Sabbath. When his detractors tried to claim that he was disobeying God, Jesus claimed that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. The purpose of the Sabbath was to help bring humans closer to God. It wasn't about keeping a law for law's sake. The specific interpretation had changed, but not the deeper moral command. During the 19th century in America, there was a big battle over the Sabbath. Should stores be open on Sundays? If a store was open, you'd be forcing people to work on that day. Is that Christian? That was the context of the 19th century. Today, very few, even devout Christians, assert that everything should be closed on Sunday. Sabbath-keeping is about carving out time for God in the midst of our busy schedules. When we intentionally rest from work, from earning money or spending it, we honor God. In each historical context and in each time, Sabbath-keeping still matters. It still reflects some part of the divine mind for our lives but we need to seek out what that means for today. 
We need to use our minds to discern what the truth might be. There's this constant interaction between the divine mind and our minds. It's a process of interpretation in life. This perspective, this framework for God, has a lot to be said for it. Personal idealism is all about the unfolding process of discerning the mind of God in creation. Much like a student of Plato might examine a situation or an issue to discern the deeper truth within it, a personal idealist examines the Bible, church history, our own experience, and the insights of science to discern the truth about God. How is the divine mind at work in the world? Where is God in this situation or that one? Inevitably, our interpretations are products of our culture and time, but that shouldn't stop us from trying to search out God. Of course God is a product of our worldview. That doesn't mean God doesn't exist. The question is whether a deeper reality exists beyond the material world. This is the basis for personal idealism. Like the other perspectives we've examined, it makes both philosophical and logical sense. What do you think of it? Do you find the idea of a divine mind compelling? Are perceptions, thoughts, ideas primary? While you're mulling that over, I'd like to encourage you to return next week, because next week we'll look more specifically at quantum mechanics and God and see how they might fit together. When's a time for deep reflection on the faith? Happy theologizing.